Welcome to Bollywood is for Lovers, part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I was very happy to get a review copy of the new book, Bollywood Horrors, Religion, Violence, and Cinematic Fears in India from Bloomsbury University Press. And uh, yeah, read it, had a good time with it. So I asked the publisher if I was able to talk to one of the editors and authors from the book, and they said yes. So uh, here is my interview with Brian Collins talking about uh, the collection as a whole, uh, the different uh, pieces that are in the book, and specifically his two articles that he wrote. So, enjoy. All right, so uh, I am speaking with uh, Brian Collins, one of the authors of the recent uh, collection, Bollywood Horrors, from Bloomsbury Academic. Uh, how are you today, Brian? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks. Um, thanks for inviting me on the show. No problem. So this is a brand new book. I mean, it's copyrighted 2021. So you are fresh off the presses. Uh, how's it feel to get a uh, Bollywood book uh, published by an academic publisher? Because there aren't many. No, there's not. Uh, it was a, it was kind of a, kind of a long slog actually over a period of four years to get the book published, and it felt really good to, uh, to get everything together and and see it, uh, see it in in um, with its cover and everything, mm -hmm. have it in my hand. So yeah. Isn't that satisfying good. to get the the hand feel? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I I I had seen what the cover was going to be like, and I'd seen what the plates were going to look like on the PDF, but actually having in the book, and then to know that it's out there. I mean, unfortunately, I would have been otherwise at the American Academy of Religion conference talking about the book when mm -hmm. it was on the table, but uh, a Bloomsbury table. But of course, I, I wasn't. Yeah, these plates came out really nicely too, because uh, there's what, probably 12 plates in here? Oh, 16. 16 plates of images, and we're going to get into that in a minute because that's kind of your big thesis is these images. But uh, so if you're looking for this on the Bloomsbury website, this is actually under religious studies, though, rather than film studies. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe your background in kind of scholarship? Sure. Well, I'm a historian of religion who specializes in religion of ancient India. So I studied, uh, did my PhD at the University of Chicago Divinity School with a woman named Wendy Doniger, who's a scholar of the epics and the Vedas and also comparative religion. And uh, my interest in, uh, in, in films comes from that background. And then my co-editors are also from a religious studies background at Queens University. And so we had a conference, we had a meeting, uh, American Academy of Religion meeting, where we did a panel on religious themes in Indian horror movies, and we decided to turn that into a book, which is how things got started. So it started out with three religious studies scholars who happened to be interested in Bollywood movies, horror movies, and wanted to write something about it, and uh, and we went from there. So did you put out a call for papers, or was this all people at that conference? Well, we put the whole panel together and then proposed it. So we, we had already had the people. I, mean, I guess we had a little bit of a call for papers, but it was all people that we knew who cool. who were who could work on this. And uh, and then from the conference, actually, we, we had to solicit some more essays to fill out the book because we only had four, okay. uh, you know, four essays to go. So is that a smaller literary community of people who focus on uh, kind of Hindu scholarship, but also like you know, sleazy horror movies? It's pretty small, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the one person who has done it is another author in this text, uh, Hugh Urban, who has written about 
uh, the image of the tantric mm-hmm. in Bollywood, because that's when, when his Bengali tantra was his main focus. And and so he got interested in the way they were portrayed on screen, mm-hmm. you know, with these, these sinister black caped figures. So he, he wrote a little bit about it, uh, and he actually wrote something for us here, too. But beyond that... I mean, there's plenty about religious themes in Japanese and and East Asian, Chinese and Korean and in Indonesian uh, horror films. Well, less so in Indonesian horror films, but uh, very, very little about religious themes in Indian horror films. Yeah, which is weird because it's not like religious themes in Hindi cinema are hard to find. I mean, it's you typically get it every other movie, really, like uh, talking about, um, you know, Ram and Sita or Krishna and Radha, these come up all the time and kind of these sort of stories are often reworked and revisited and uh, put into different uh, lenses. And I've noticed that they often do come up in Hindi horror movies too. It's just, it it would almost feel like this is super fertile ground for religious, um, religious scholars to look at this particular film industry. Yeah, I, I think so. That's why we were excited about the book, and that's really the pitch we made for publishers, that this is an untapped uh, area of research. And the, the there's been high-quality stuff done about religion in film in general in India. And of course, the earliest films there being mythologicals. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, there's all sorts of things to say about that. But but this was a subgenre that, you know, and it's, that's been the story of this, of, of my entire engagement with Indian horror films is people – um, not wanting to talk about them or or deal with them in any way or sort of dismiss them as trash ephemera uh, and and is not a real you know Indian genre that, you know, some western ripoffs that that come out here and there mm-hmm. so it, it's it suffers from kind of being critically overlooked uh, for for a long time yeah even compared to Hollywood uh, horror movies in Bollywood really do get a bad rap from critics especially um, but you know, I will say I, I can't say I could think of off the top of my head, maybe three that I've seen that I would consider like great works. Like a lot of them are not amazing. No, I, I, I agree. It, it is. Sometimes it's a, uh, it, it's a chore to get through them. Uh, for me, I, I do get bored with the subplots that are constantly sort of shoehorned into everything to pad out the time and make it give a romantic or a comic, mm-hmm. uh, element to the film. So I think they could – I mean, if they did some sort of a realism, like a Satyajit Rai-style realism for a horror film, I mean, there are more – there's definitely more post-Ramsey stuff, which is a lot less um, Bollywoody uh, mm-hmm. horror films. But, you know, I don't – I'm more interested, though, in the ones that are, you know, quote-unquote bad. They're not great, mm-hmm. uh, but they do have a lot of really interesting uh, things going on, and they're a great lens to see certain – things about Indian culture. Well, that's definitely something that we've tried to do with on this show is that, um, I mean, this is probably more my help belief than Aaron's, but uh, I think that world art cinema, typically you could find a lot of parallels across cultures. You look at uh, Sajit Rai and something like, oh, I don't know, Ozu, and you're seeing kind of parallels in, you know, slow shots, learning about uh, people, it, it, it's. I, I think you could pinpoint an art film across cultures, but when you want to find out, okay, well, what do regular people watch and what do they like about what's popular, then you have to learn a lot more about the culture because art films are typically poised at upper middle class people with of means, and those are 
they have a lot in common between cultures. But what is it about uh, a Ramsey Brothers movie that that works on people? Why is it so many focuses on witches and like old temples that have gone into disrepair? Why is that the kind of touchstones? So I agree. It's uh, it is really interesting to look at these sort of ephemera because they are being laser targeted at a specific audience rather than, you know, being done for uh, export. Right. No, I, th I think you're right. Yeah. The, the Ramsey brothers weren't like, weren't going to ship these films around the world as like other films were with Bollywood cinema and Tollywood cinema became so popular. There are some exceptions though. The, the, um, the snake woman films were popular in, in Ghana. So yeah. you see a lot of posters from Ghana about snake, snake woman films. And also, um, there's another one. Uh, Johnny Dushman was was sent to Ghana. But yeah, uh, th these are films for basically for the taxi driver yeah. types. Um, you know, to watch them during the day uh, or very late at night uh, in film theaters that also showed mainstream stuff. I learned a lot about the way that film was distributed in India, and uh, that actually opened a lot of doors for my research to think about why these things are the way they are. Have you seen the, uh, this is an art movie, but it's uh, called Miss Lovely? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because yeah. that was a real kind of look at that sort of grimy underworld of how, you know, your exploitation films are made. And I thought that was really fascinating. We actually saw that probably before watching a Ramsey Brothers movie. So afterwards, it's like, okay, I've seen the artsy way of how they put these things together, supposedly. But when you actually see the real stuff, it's like, oh, okay, you're not going to see any tits at all. That's great. Yeah, you know, Aditi Sin, who was one of the co-editors, was um, was a, a friend of the director. And so she pointed me to that movie. And then, of course, they collaborated with the actor later on Sacred Games, mm -hmm. uh, So it's a, which I loved, absolutely loved the Sacred Games series. Yeah, I, there's also a good documentary called – oh, what's it called? The, I think it's called The, Tra the Film Travelers mm. that follows um, a, a film truck that goes to rural India and shows these B and C grade movies yeah. uh, and how they do it. And, and, and in the middle, they switch to a digital format that stops working immediately. Like they could always find out a way to fix the projectors mm -hmm. uh, to get them going again with, you know, come hell or high water. But once the digital equipment broke, they were just, their whole business went under. So it was, it was about how long they used film and projection in those rural um, um, traveling cinemas, even though it was unwieldy, heavy, and uh, and broke down a lot, because it actually, like a lot of things in India, looks fragile and um, run down, but can be made to work again and again and again and again with some fixing. Yeah, there's something to be said for analog, right? Like, this podcast even is ephemeral. Like, we're putting it out there, and it's getting onto people's phones, but it's really just kind of living on a cloud. It's not actually, you know, made into celluloid or made into vinyl or something. Um, I'm sure there's people probably kind of puzzling over that now that so much culture, specifically this last year, has been through podcasts and digital, and 10 years from now, we're not going to be able to access it. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, it, what's the upgrade that's going to happen where you, afterwards you can't open the podcast anymore? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if we have digital files we can't open and they were maybe six years ago. Uh, it's just a weird codec or something has fallen out of favor and you can't use it anymore. Uh, so getting back to the um, book, you have articles from yourself. You've got two of those and we're going to get to them. But you've got one from Kathleen Erndl, who unfortunately passed away, it sounds like. She did. You've got Hugh Urban, who's doing the Tantrics, and then Aditi Sen, who you mentioned, talking about the, the Raz series, which is 
that um, finding out about that kind of cottage industry of the Roz films, where there's been three or four of those, and then that's Ramgo Bobarma, right? I think. Yes. Yeah. And then I think we saw a couple of his later ones. That guy kind of went out of style. <laughs> Uh, but then in the third part, you've got uh, cultural horror movies, which this is this is where Beth Watkins, uh, who's been on the show before, Beth Loves Bollywood, talked about Mardani, which, yeah, that's it's certainly talking about a horrifying situation and a realistic situation, but kind of a broader uh, view of horror films. And then Morgan Audi talking about Bandit Queen and uh, rape revenge movies, which um, really interesting stuff. Uh, we haven't seen Band of Queen, but it has just popped up on Amazon Prime, so we may actually be delving into that one sooner than we thought. And then Alan Goldberg talking about Dave, which is a kind of political movie about um, uh, riots and uh, religious riots, basically, between right. the Hindus and the Muslims. So, yeah, there's quite the uh, selection of stuff here. Um was it difficult working with the publisher when you have this kind of wide range of topics that you're uh, looking at? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's obvious. I think that we we are we like I said at the beginning. You know, there's not many people who study this. Really, Aditi and I were the ones who liked these movies. I I went to one of her talks because I just happened to come across it in the catalog at an earlier conference. And I said, wow, somebody else is actually saying something about these movies that I discovered on my first trip to India and I've been curious about ever since. Hmm. So we started um, corresponding and uh, and we wanted to do something, but religious studies scholars who worked on Indian horror films, you know, which we could narrowly define them like monster movies or whatever, were really not around. So we said, well, what can we, and but Ellen Goldberg wanted to be a part of it because she had a piece on Dave that was about a cultural horror, and she was working with um, uh, notions of trauma, and sort of uh, the. And so there is, there is, I think there is some precedent for this. If I said in the introduction, you know, Chicago Films Critics Association had named a Salo, 120 Days of Sodom, uh, one of the scariest movies ever made, which is about. Uh, it's based on Marquis de Sade's last work, unfinished work, but it takes place in fascist Italy. And it's no, there's no jump scares or anything, but it is a dread. It is a very dreadful mm -hmm. uh, movie. So we thought about horror beyond just jump scares and monsters uh, to also deal with with horrifying things, the feeling of horror that you can get from film. Sure. So that's why we said, well, let's let's talk about horrors rather than horror, and 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 sort of divide the book up in, into various sections that explore the different facets of horror in Indian cinema. And so that's that's kind of how things came together. And it was it did require us to kind of rethink our project because there just was not going to be enough people to write on the Ramsey Brothers movies and these other uh, really straightforward Indian horror movies to make a book. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to do the book, wanted to publish them because there was nowhere else, nowhere else to publish it. Yeah. And you do kind of, you do link it together uh, with the uh, Sanskrit philosophy of Rasa because there are different ways of being horrified and some of it is by seeing a scary skeleton or something, or otherwise it's being horrified by, you know, the world in which you live and uh, dead bodies and stuff like that. So there, there is a way that it is being um, linked together through that. And that's also tying back into the religious philosophies. So I thought that made sense. It's, 
yeah, it, you know, let me know next time. I, I could probably write something. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, necessity, mother invention and all that, you know, it made us rethink it. But in rethinking it, I think we came up with a uh, a really good concept to, to tie these things together. Mm -hmm. It's it's the horror as in, you know, Apocalypse Now, the horror. And yeah. uh, Kurtz oh, has yeah. seen some pretty crazy shit. So it's, you know, he might not have seen a werewolf, but he's definitely seen genocide and stuff. So, right. yeah, I, it, you know, it worked in the end for me. Um, but so let's get to the parts that you specifically worked on, though, because I thought those were really, really interesting. So you worked on two articles for this, uh, Monsters, Masala and Materiality, Close Encounters with Hindi Horror Movie Ephemera, and then Vampire Man Varma, the untold story of the Hindu mystic who decolonized Dracula. Um, so the the first article is on film posters and material culture. Can you talk a little bit about material culture for our listeners? They might not have encountered this term. Right. Well, um, the first thing I knew about Indian horror movies was a poster that I saw when I was in India. Actually, the first poster I saw in India, which caught my attention, was a, a teenage sex comedy poster. It clearly was a was a American or maybe a French teen sex comedy that was that was being marketed and i said you know, i had no idea that they would have such a thing right here marketed on a billboard mm -hmm. and then i saw a horror movie billboard i said where are these movies playing because the only bollywood movies i knew at the time the big movie was lagan mm -hmm. and so everybody was going to see lagan i saw a movie called um which was not a good not a good movie mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was a long um, Bollywood movie. So I said, "What are these things?" And I didn't ever, I did, I, I didn't see them until I had already found stills from the photo, from the um, from this, from the set, from the set, like uh, uh, continuity stills that you could buy on the market in um, Chor Bazaar in Mumbai, uh, posters and song booklets, and at the time in the early 2000s, VCDs mm -hmm. were everywhere. And I wanted to write about VCDs, but we didn't have room to put it in the book. So I, I started out with it was material culture to me. I said, you know, I, I didn't really think too much about it because I'm not, you know, I study texts really in ritual to a certain extent. But I started to read about people who did work on material culture. And so let, let me think about these things in their own terms as objects. How did this object end up in my hands? And that's so that's so I started from there and started to work backwards to how these things that are meant to be you know, wheat pasted onto a wall where they can never come down. They'll just be washed out by the monsoon or covered up by another poster. But I somehow had it in my hand still existing 20 years after the, after the fact. It wasn't built to lift that last that long, but mm -hmm. it did. Yeah. We used to have a big Chris three poster up there. You can't see it, but uh, we took that one down, but the, the poster quality, even for a, you know, 2010s movie, it's much different from what you would find with a uh, Western style poster. It's kind of closer to newsprint, I'd say. It is. It is newsprint. And I actually did some research into what these things are. You know, they use very, very short grains of fiber from the from the tree. So it's a pulp. It's much easier to make, much cheaper to make, also much more fragile. Uh, the edges crumble if you, if you notice it with well, the way they're stored, but also just because uh, of handling the edges start to come apart mm -hmm. uh, so they're not made on the heavy poster stock those are sometimes found in the in the song booklet covers but for the most part even that is the really thin um sort of cowl and clay coated uh uh it's the same kind of the same kind of material that you would get a a, a, a coupon circular mm -hmm. in america or canada 
So it's kind of glossy, but it's also very fragile. So these things are, are it's sort of miraculous to have them and to mm-hmm. see them. And that, that was where I started from. Yeah, the poster we had kind of reminded me of like a wonton wrapper, that kind of consistency, because a dry one, basically. But yeah, it's interesting that that has continued to be the norm. Like you're looking at kind of 80s and 90s movies for these posters, but even a you know gigantic budget movie like Crush 3, poster quality has remained the same. But there's also um, a real aesthetic um, style to these posters, even though it's probably just some intern at the company cutting things out of a magazine and cutting and blowing them up out of uh, film stills and stuff and putting together this collage. But like the, the Ghana, Ghanaian, Ghana, the yeah, posters Ghana. from Ghana, which are beautifully handwritten, uh, beautifully hand drawn and full of severed heads and blood and everything. These have a real sort of cut up aesthetic that almost reminds me of like uh, posters for punk shows or something. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about how these uh, how these get made? Right. Well, it, it's, it's as you say. So uh, right now they're made by computers and by Photoshop. But in the older older days, uh, they were made by taking stills from the movie, blowing them up, and putting them on a poster, and then typing out the text or or painting out the text because they would use this large block, um, Devanagari or and Nostalic uh, print. Too, that usually was 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 made to look um sort of stand out, and and then the the minimal information about the stars and the songs or the production company or whoever is distributing it in that region are are typed up and then uh, and then cut out of paper and pasted on there. Then the whole thing is photographed and reproduced as a as a poster. So th- it, at some point there was an object that was made to look like that by cutting up paper and mixed media uh, application. So it, 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 it's an inter- it's interesting, it's, it's charming about it is you can see sort of the seams, like there's there's a poster that analyzed Ravni Haveli uh, very closely in, the, in the, my article, where you can see that the, whoever was working on it, cut out the bottom part of a, of a text to align with the bottom of the text, but then left the top sort of uh, wide open. So it, it's lopsided mm-hmm. looking, it, it was not done, uh, with with the most care, but really done to get the thing out there, and so you, it's evident when you look closely at it. Also, sometimes they're printed off center, which you can see uh, when you look at the way that the colors run. Yeah, you want to talk about ephemeral? It's like there's no way that they actually kept the work, like the the poster that they used for the scan. Like it's that was just tossed in the garbage the next day, or taken oh, yeah. apart oh, yeah. and used to make something else. But they also will use. Parts from other movies. So I'm looking at plate two here for Katarnakarat, which is definitely the skull face from uh, Evil Dead 2 right there. Uh, I recognize 100%. that instantaneously, <laughs> but, you know, that movie might not have been as popular in India. It might not have even been shown in India. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's fair game. Well, that was one of my questions. You know, did, did who knew these movies? Because there, there's one place where, I mean, there's an old mo- movie called Monster on Campus that gets used a lot. Mm-hmm. A picture of a monster holding a white woman from the 1950s. It looks like a giant uh, gorilla. Uh, the the skull from Evil Dead 2 is used a lot. The actually the image from the Frighteners, the Michael J. Fox movie. Oh yeah, one of my uh, favorites actually. The the ghost poking out of the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That one's used a lot. Yeah. I said, well, so I I said. So I said to myself, what do these mean to people? And then I thought about the other 
sort of circulation of objects in India, which was pirated videos. Mm -hmm. And so the people I talked to in India who were fans uh, of, of horror movies could buy pretty much the ones they wanted to see uh, in bootleg VHS. And sometimes these bootleg VHSs would be played for an apartment building or an apartment complex where they would just hook up a VCR to the cable instead of a cable. And so if you turn to channel three or whatever, everybody in the apartment building would see whatever they were playing and they would make a eight hour tape with usually a softcore pornographic movie, a horror movie, and um, maybe like a Chuck Norris movie or something that they would start playing later at night. Right. So there was, wasn't there a Avjay Devgan movie where he was like a sheriff in a town and he also ran the TV station? What is that? I have to look that up, but that that yeah, that remember. is very familiar to me that, yeah, like someone would just be running movies or something all day long. And I think that kind of rules, actually. Like that that's amazing. <laughs> it's like yeah, having, I, I it's it, like it having cool. a Twitch stream now. And it's your, you know, you're kind of just showing movies under the table on Twitch. I, I, you know, I, I, I have concerns about copyright, mostly from my work, but also some of these, like these people are never going to purchase the movie. They, they don't have the money. They don't have the access. So even getting them to see the movie is, I think, an accomplishment. Yeah. And I think it inspired people to make, to, to take those images and those ideas and make something uniquely Indian with it, mm -hmm. which is great. Yeah, I, I I love that idea though that like your your apartment building your your whole shawl maybe everyone there you, know, you got a special channel that um, you know someone down the street oh yeah he makes those movies he uh, he might splice one of his own every now and then wasn't there a TV channel in New York that was kind of like that too in the eighties Channel Z Channel Z I think you might be right uh, that was the in, in the early days of the public access uh, uh, film there. Yeah, there's some there's a documentary about that Channel Z. I just I can't remember much about it right now. Yeah, I would call it Channel Z, but you guys would call it Channel Z. Yeah, 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 Channel Z. But Channel that's Z. you know I, I love that sort of communal appreciation of things and just opening people's uh, minds up. Because in your article you talk about these these VCDs and things, and you were just amazed by the weird selection of stuff that has just kind of washed up here. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, so another another touchstone that you look at is these song booklets. And what's interesting is that I talked to uh, Devashree Mukherjee, author of Bombay Hustle, last month, and her her book's all about uh, movies from the 30s. Um, and again, one of the only extant things from uh, these movies, because the films themselves have disappeared into the ether, is these song booklets. And she's looking at, you know, Here's a movie about how India is industrializing, or here's a movie about uh, why it's important to go to school or something. And, you know, that's all well and good. And then you're looking at Lady Killer here. Who will be the victim tonight? <laughs> and uh, That was the original title of the article, by the way, was Who will be the victim tonight, but oh, I eventually changed it. Uh, I, I like the title better. <laughs> but um, that can you talk a little bit about this particular artifact? Because there's so many different languages, and again, that cut-up aesthetic, I... I think it's hilarious. Oh yeah, the part with the tree. You know, it look it looks like this guy is maybe an ex. Oh no, uh, he's got a chainsaw. Maybe he's murdering people, but it looks like he fought a tree or something. You want to talk right. about that? Yeah. So, Lady Killer. Um, you look at the front cover and you see a guy who is digitally uh, covered in blood, holding up a chainsaw. This film and the image behind him did not appear uh, in the movie. 
and then a woman who is pointing straight out at you, uh, saying who will be the victim tonight, implying that you will be the victim tonight. But the image tells me the story of a, mag- of a, of a mass murderer with a chainsaw. He's a killer of ladies, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it says to me. However, in in, in the the English katasa um, or the English story is not very helpful. But when you look at the Hindi story, it's it's a very familiar South Asian folklore motif of a haunted tree, a tree that's haunted by a yaksha or some other kind of a demon that demands sacrifice uh, to, and, and gives people children. And so it's basically this story. The, the tree is the evil thing, not him. He's he's What they want to say with the image is he's going to cut down the tree and finally save everybody. But why is he covered in blood? Why is it called Lady Killer? You know? <laughs> so, so when you look at the Hindi and then you look at the movie, which you can find on YouTube, it, there's a really big disconnect between um, this plot and the image. But then I thought, well, the image is doing something too. I mean, a lot of people will probably just see that image and never see the movie. Mm-hmm. And so there is a story that that image is telling. That's not the story of the movie, but is somehow related to it because it's arising from the, what's implied in an image. Mm-hmm. It's used to used to advertise. It's a great booklet. It's got a lot, so many weird things going on in it. I was so happy to get the rights to do that one. I mean, getting the rights was a nightmare. I could only I imagine might've... because it's not like these production companies got the rights to half the images they use in their posters and things anyway. But how, how did you actually do that? Cause that's gotta Jeez. be. Cause I had so many images that, Oh, this is be great. I told all the publishers, I said, I, I've got like 60 incredible film posters that we can use. And, you know, because they're film, because they're advertisements, they're protect, protected by um, fair use, right? Cause they're supposed to advertise the movie. So if you're just reproducing it and you have say something about it, then you have fair use. But none of them bought into that. Mm-hmm. None of them wanted to worry about that. They said, you have to get signed releases from every one of these people. And I, I, so I hired a guy in Mumbai to go around to find these production companies, which are often fly by night operations been closed for years. And people would just refuse to talk to him, refuse to re- return his calls. Uh, but he was, you know, he's pro. He knew what he was doing. He eventually found the people who signed the paper uh, that would, the publisher then agreed to not to use. So I had to cut out a lot of the ones that I really wanted. Uh, but I, I, all the ones, all, all these are ones I wanted to use, but there were some that I really wish I could have put in there. Put them on Pinterest and say that that is a digital component. Just say, oh, yeah, you, you read the book, and then now you can check out uh, some more posters here on my um, on my website. I've thought about that because I have high-quality photographs of all the posters. Mm-hmm. And so what am I going to do with them? Like the, the publisher, I get the reticence to use other people's work. But for a Pinterest or something, it's not like anyone else has uh, you know any qualms about it. So you might as well just uh, throw them up there. Right. No, that's what I think. I mean, the Ramsey brothers were different because – they are working on some kind of a biographical project and they don't want any, anything coming out anywhere else. So I, I, I got to, uh, I got to go ahead with, with, with the, with the article that told them the told, told some of the story of the Ramsey brothers, but it was not enough for them to worry about, but yeah, they didn't want um, that. They wanted to have all the rights reserved for some project they were going to be a part of. Interesting. I wonder if they're working with uh, Shamia Dasgupta after his book, right? Yeah, it's he's the one that told me about it. So I think he would have said if it was him mm. that was doing it. So I think it's somebody else. Well, that also does sound like the Ramsey brothers too. Like, oh, someone has done a book about us. Well, 
we're going to do our own thing about us, and it's going to be yeah, twice yeah. as long. Big, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah that, that, that was that's the idea. That sounds you know, like that. Had, had interviewed some of them, and and they still they weren't going. So I, I didn't I didn't bother with it too much because some of these ones lesser known have just as interesting visual qualities, if not more so. Well, I'm looking at uh, the uh, poster for Kuni Morda. This is plate number seven, and that's like pretty. Well, it's gross, but it is pretty beautiful uh, drawing of some ghoul eating a lady or a guy. It's a really interesting sort of uh, digression, not a digression, but kind of something your article leads to is the idea that the audience themselves are being eaten by this creature. Um, do you want to go into that a bit? Because that was that was really, really reading between the lines on like how uh, um, uh, um, this is marketed towards men mostly, and you're talking about people being consumed, and it also refers back to, um, you know, flesh eaters in uh, mythology. That was a really interesting sort of, I hesitate to say digression, but it was really interesting. I guess it was kind of a digression, uh, it, but it was, there was a set of posters I was looking at that all had variations of the same image, which was a woman being eaten in a giant mouth. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the first interpretation comes to mind is, you know, this is a misogynistic image, or but you think about I started because I knew Carol Clover's work from a long time ago, and it's really she's a medievalist who wrote about um, 80 slasher movies. And her point is that it's the primary identification of the audience in a 80 slasher movie, American or Canadian, uh, is the uh, final girl, the victim who at the end, you know, slays the monster. And freeze herself. And so that that male viewers are identifying themselves with this. And that's why for her, that's what her hypothesis was. They usually had a either a gender neutral or almost a masculine name uh, to sort of help with that identification. And uh, and, and I thought this is this is a compelling argument. And also in India, you have this whole um, sort, of, sort of school, especially with Vaishnava Sahajiyas, other tantric texts where being um being taken by the god is is the highest form of rapture of of ecstasy of transcendental experience and i tended to think that it was possible that people looking at these images identified themselves with the with the with the woman being devoured and uh cuz you know i also thought back to this passage in the gita where arjuna looks at krishna and what he sees is a giant gaping mouth with fangs devouring the universe so there's a precedent for seeing God in this way and for identifying yourself next to God is in, is in the female position, which is what um, in Bengali Vaishnavism is, is common to do, to identify yourself with Radha, the consort of Krishna, because Radha's devotion to Krishna is the purest. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a gender switch identification, and it also uh, is a, a certain kind of um, a theological understanding. So I... I I, you know, I, I decided to make the argument because I couldn't get it out of my head. And, you know, people will judge whether or not the argument holds up. But but I, I tend to think it's worth thinking about. And an interesting inversion of the body of Christ in, uh, you know, Western, um, you know, teachings that you are you're taking Christ into you, whereas you're being eaten by uh, Krishna in the other yeah. sense. So, yeah, oh, that was really cool. So the other uh, piece you have in this book is called Vampire Man Varma, the untold st- story of the Hindu mystic who decolonized Dracula. And this guy is fascinating. And it is honestly criminal that I hadn't er- heard about him before. Can you tell our listeners about him? Sure. Uh, so the, the story behind this article is that I was doing research for the other article, 
that we just talked about. And I was looking at um, it, it, it's Sanskritic ideas about holy terror, a sort of a trembling before God, which is part of my argument for the big mouths. And I found this book called The Gothic Flame uh, in my in my sort of Google's text searches. And I got it from the library and looked at it. And it has this in Gothic print, a big sort of it says Gothic Flame and these red letters on the black background. It looks very um, popular almost. But you open it and the first page is a uh, plate of Drohal Nehru. And it said, Drohal Nehru taken in Nova Scotia. And I said, what is this? What is this book about Gothic novels whose, uh, whose frontispiece is an, an image of Nehru from Canada? So I looked at the guy, Devendra Varma was his name. I said, who is this guy? And so I started Googling him. And um, he was a great scholar of Gothic novels. He's the one who was popular, who was responsible for popularizing novels like um, Varney the Vampire, the Penny Dreadful. He had his, he edited a whole series of books of Gothic classics uh, that he, that he published under his, uh, published under his auspices. Also Carmilla, the Sheridan Le Fanu, the lesbian vampire story. So he's a big part of the vamp vampire popularity in the sixties. Uh, and I looked him up and I noted this was, I, I could not believe this, but his grandchildren had won a contest sponsored by Airbnb to spend the night in Dracula's <laughs> castle, quote unquote, Dracula's castle yeah. in Transylvania. And I said, this gotta be, this has gotta be some kind of a stunt. And so I actually emailed the woman, his, his, because she's a party planner in Toronto. And I said, and I asked her about it and she said, well, no, it wasn't a stunt. We were chosen from so many thousand people <laughs> to, and, and it's, did they know who you were? And they didn't they didn't know it was a complete coincidence because Varma used to himself lead tours of Castle Dracula for his students in Dalhousie. So going back to who he was, I mean, he was born into a wealthy um, upper caste family in what's in what's now Nepal. And uh, he was his he married a woman who was a cousin of Nehru. Uh, he met with Gandhi personally. He fought in World War II, and this is also no joke. He fought in a in a in the Japan, Japanese theater in what's called Operation Dracula. Mm -hmm. And he sounded like kind of like a black ops guy, and he knew well, Christopher he was, Lee. Yeah, like, yeah <laughs> they were supposed to fight through Thailand um, to attack the Japanese from that side, and he was um, he was uh, 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 captured and was a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp before he was released, and then he became a diplomat in the Middle East, in what was then the United Arab um, uh, Republic, which is uh, Syria in Egypt, uh, and and became very close with the, the general who sort of ran the affairs of state there. But he also was a Shakespearean actor who put on the first ever Syrian <laughs> Macbeth. Yeah. The first ever non-Syrian language play in Syria, which was Macbeth, which he played in whiteface. He also did Merchant of Venice, and at his performance of Merchant of Venice, um, um, Gamal Abdel Nasser came and uh, and was pulled on stage to take a bow. <laughs> Eventually, he ended up in Canada and started writing about Gothic novels, and, um, and he was awarded by the Count Dracula Society of Los Angeles for his for his work in popularizing vampires and Gothic novels. He advised on some Hammer horror pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, Britain, he knew Vincent Price and Christopher Lee, who, of course, played Dracula in all the Vin Hammer horror movies, as well as a Saruman and Lord of the Rings. Uh, and 
and he and he he died in um in New York when he was on a tour. But this was an absolutely fascinating character because he was so he was as you say it's criminal not to know about him because he was really a big part of the gothic revival of the 1960s where you got shows like Dark Shadows mm-hmm. about a vampire soap opera and also um, the new reimaginings of the vampire literature and, and Hammer horror films and other things like that. Uh, he was a part of, of that. He was His scholarship and his popularization of these texts was a part of that. And then those very movies were copied in India. Uh, it's, it's sort of the backdrop for their horror movies. I said, well, is it really, are they really being copied from the West if the guy who is um, partially responsible for making them happen in Britain and in America was himself uh, an Indian scholar of English literature. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it really is a, a kind of a mind bending thing to think about where he, how to, how to position him in this trading off back and forth of, uh, of, of concepts and, and images and, um, and symbols between uh, Western horror movies and, and Indian horror movies. Well, he sounds like one of those just 20th century lives. You can't believe that someone did all this crazy crap and no. just retires to become a professor after being a spy and also being in World War II and, you know, kind of flirting around with Hollywood a little bit and uh, a hammer. And, you know, you could almost see him becoming like a Indian equivalent to uh, Jean Roland in France or something. Like he's got the kind of background to make, you know, Jean Roland famous for making lesbian horror, lesbian vampire movies over and over and over again. He loved that. And I could see this guy doing that too. He didn't really get a chance to make any movies as, as much as he wanted to. It seemed like that was one of his goals. It was. That's what I took. I mean, he he gave a lecture at UCLA. I think UCLA about, it was was called the the silver screen potential of Gothic horror. Mm -hmm. He basically said, you know, we've all seen the vampires and they've done Frankenstein, but there's so much more that could be now exploited by, by the, by cinema. And, you know, the strong implication was that he was the one who could, Mm -hmm. who could do it. So he started inching his way towards writing screenplays and writing popular uh, fiction type stuff, but it never really, never really took off. And he knew St. Joshi, right? Yeah, he was actually dissertation advisor St. Joshi. Yeah, so he also kind of brought Lovecraft into the academic sphere too. Yeah, that. I think he, I think his dissertation was about Lovecraft. I, well, he and even more Lovecraftian, he knew personally uh, Robert Bloch, yeah. who was Lovecraft's last disciple. This is this is just an amazing sort of linkage that now that you know about it, it feels like it explains a lot of things that happened afterwards, like, oh, this guy was kind of secretly in the center of all this uh, this horror movie scholarship and uh, bringing back to life. And I thought that was fascinating. And I, I wish there was a movie about him. I don't know who I would get to play. Who, who would you get to direct this movie? Wow. Um, you know, I seems well, who are we talking about that did Miss Lovely? And- Miss Lovely was directed by Ashim Aluwalia. So okay. he has done oh, a movie called The Field Guide to Evil. So, okay, so it's kind of a world horror film. He did one called Daddy. Oh, he did Daddy. I like Daddy. He did Daddy, which was Arjun Rampal as a gangster turned politician. Yeah, okay, so he's got he's definitely got a feel for uh, 70s genre stuff then. Yeah, no, I think, or, you know, and, and, and Amitabh Bachchan could play him. You want Ali Tabacha? Oh, interesting. A grand old, a grand old, uh, you know, man of the silver screen. So this would be kind of like 
him reflecting on his life and maybe have a younger guy for a younger version of him in World War II or something. Yeah, he and Amitabh Bachchan knew him as well. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah. What I was reading, I was thinking, if he's interested, I would look for the director of Marco Dard Nahinhota. Have you seen that film? I have not seen that one. The director's named Vasan Bala, and it's a Oh, he, he, he was in Psycho Raman, too. So he's kind of in the Anya Kashyap uh, uh, zone. But he made a movie called Marco Dard Nahinhota, which is about a young man with uh, who's born without the capacity to feel pain. And he uses hmm. this to uh, fight crime and basically, like, learn karate and stuff. And it's it's playing with a lot of the 80s Bollywood action. I think he would be a good choice for that. And uh, for an actor... You need someone who's scholarly, but also seems kind of badass in a sense. And I would say Ayushman Karana, possibly. I mean, he's, he was, uh, I mean, he was really uh, probably part of the Bengali uh, class, but he was, he's actually considered himself, I think, um, Nepali as well as, as well as Canadian and Indian, because he was a big part of their, uh, their, um, they're, they're, they're Canadian, the Canadian branch of the Nepali society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like uh, when he was teaching at Dalhousie, he, you know, in, in addition to um, his horror movie stuff, he also was sort of a leader in the South Asian community. So that was cool to see, too. Uh, but, yes. yeah, fascinating life. And I was really happy to learn about him while reading the article. So thanks for that. Yeah, no, I'm glad that people know about him. I, I have corresponded with his uh, grandson for a long time. Uh, Robin Varma, and they were very, they were very nice. They cha- shared with me the entire. They had scanned all his papers at some point, and they sent me everything, as well as some videos, and uh, and I was so I got the publishing company to send them a book, as uh, as a thanks. Nice, yeah, because this, you know, I had never heard hide nor hair of this man, and I've been watching. I, I've watched a lot of Hindi horror movies, especially. And I'm also interested in Lovecraft and Gothic stuff, too. So it, it feels like a kind of light switch has been turned on. Like, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a guy at the center of all this. The Gothic flame. It's out of print, but you can get it in you know, the library. Yeah. It it almost feels like, uh, you know, I don't know if Bloomsbury would be interested, but it's he died almost long enough ago that it would be entering the public domain in Canada. Well, no, we got screwed over by the new NAFTA. Never mind. We're at 75 after death like you guys are. But it okay, used to be yeah. 50 years after death. So it would be getting close soonish, but uh, yeah, um, fascinating stuff. All this and more can be found in Bollywood Horrors: Religion, Violence, and Cinematic Fears in India, edited by yourself, Ellen Goldberg, and Aditi Sen. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. This episode of Bollywood is for Lovers is brought to you by Career Essentials, a new podcast from TechLifeToday.ca and Nate. Career Essentials offers real-world advice and insight into different careers and career paths. Discover perspectives, tools, and tips essential to your career growth and success. Co-host Brian Ellery shares more about what to expect from this podcast. I fought fires in Australia in 2009, and I just happened to be there when there's an eight-year drought going on, and there's record-breaking temperatures, and a few thousand fires started in one day. In the town that I was in, 34 people died, so that was a pretty scary time. I love Anthony Bourdain. I read Kitchen Confidential, it got me into cooking. I thought, this is rock and roll, this is cool. Anthony Bourdain was a failed chef, and the things he did and romanticized led him to ruin. People get lost in that message. 
if I, a young business owner who owns a cafe in a small town, can make time for mental health in my business and to help educate our guests and our peers, then what's stopping larger groups of restaurants and better chefs than me from doing it in theirs? Introducing Career Essentials, a new podcast from Tech Life Today and Nate. Career Essentials offers real-world advice and insight into different careers and career paths. We feature the stories and experiences of Nate alumni with lessons for everyone. Whether you're just starting out or further along your career journey, each episode will give you perspectives, tools, and tips that are essential to growth and success. And who knows, we might even inspire you to pursue a completely new career path for professional and personal satisfaction. Career Essentials is created and hosted by the team at techlifetoday.ca, Nate's online magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This uh, Biffle episode is also brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, which publishes curiosity-driven stories, topical newsletters, and locally-focused podcasts, all in the service of informing Edmontonians about their community. Want to start your day informed? Check out The Pulse, Taproot's new daily news briefing. The Pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. You'll also get a little bit of whimsy from features such as A Moment in History, Chart of the Week, and the Friday Podcast Pick. And it's free. Sign up today at taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse. That's taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse.